Hi, and welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. We give you some insight behind how, when, where, and most definitely why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no extra charge, you get a full review of the movie from me, Bo Ransdell, and my co-host, Chad Cooper. This is season number four, can you believe it? And we are kicking off this season with truly one of the strangest films I've ever seen. This is episode one of our season entitled The War on Christmas Movies. We're beginning with a truly strange film and a real stinker by the name of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas from the year 2000. And I gotta be honest with you folks, this movie almost broke us. Enough out of me, here is Chad to tell you all about The Grinch. American literature is filled with authors with pen names that attain a level of public recognition that eclipses the author's true identity. Many may not know the name Samuel Clemens, but most certainly recognize his more familiar moniker, Mark Twain. Eric Blair signed autographs as George Orwell, and Daniel Handler's name is more commonly pronounced as Lemony Snicket. And then there's the author behind the subject of this episode, one Mr. Theodore Seuss Geisel. Ted to his friends, and Dr. Seuss to his ever-growing and adoring mass of readers, young and old. Theodore, spelled without an E at the end, Geisel, was born in Springfield, Massachusetts on March 2nd, 1904. Or as it's known in every elementary school and public library, Dr. Seuss Day. The name Seuss was his mother's maiden name, who was of German ancestry. And during World War I, Ted's strong sense of German-American heritage led him to be one of the top sellers of war bonds in his hometown. The 14-year-old Geisel was one of 10 Boy Scouts to receive a personal award from President Theodore, this time spelled with an E at the end, Roosevelt, in front of thousands of onlookers. But unbeknownst to Theodore, again, no E at the end, Geisel, President Roosevelt had been given one too few medals to award to these bond-selling scouts. Theodore Geisel was the unlucky 10th scout crossing to accept his award from President Theodore Roosevelt, and he was stared down and greeted with a friendly, What's this boy doing here? Rather than explain the situation, Theodore's scoutmaster quickly escorted the boy off the stage, making a simple mix-up the kind of emotional scar that lasts for a lifetime. The traumatized Geisel carried a permanent case of stage fright that stuck with him throughout his entire life. Geisel went on to graduate high school and then attended Dartmouth College, where he became the editor-in-chief of the humor magazine The Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern. Geisel's time at Dartmouth overlapped the era of prohibition in these United States, and one night, Ted Geisel and some of his friends were caught by the police with a bottle of bootleg gin, which led to Geisel being ousted from his editor-in-chief duties. But he continued to draw cartoons, signing them as Seuss, and then later as T. Seuss, leading him eventually to replace T with Doctor, thus giving rise to what would become one of the most famous literary identities. With brains in his head and feet in his shoes, Geisel headed to Oxford where he was planning on continuing his education with a doctorate in the philosophy of English. It was here that he met Helen Palmer, the woman he would eventually marry. And it was Helen who encouraged Geisel to pursue a career of drawing over a pursuit of being an English teacher. 
Geisel left Oxford without finishing his degree and started submitting work to magazines and book publishers. His first nationally published cartoon appeared in the July 16, 1927 issue of the Saturday Evening Post, and this taste of success led a young Mr. Geisel to move to New York City and begin an incredibly successful career in advertising. Geisel landed a job at an advertising agency after an advertising executive's wife saw a cartoon that he had published in the humor magazine, Judge. The specific cartoon that caught the exec's wife's eye mentioned a bug spray, Flit. The wife encouraged the hiring of Geisel to create ads for the DDT-laced bug killer, Flit. Geisel was hired, and his first ad for Flit appeared in 1928, and the campaign continued sporadically until 1941. The campaign was so successful that even its catchphrase, Quick Henry, the Flit, made its way into pop culture lexicon, inspiring songs and punchlines even on the Jack Benny show. Geisel was being recognized for his work on the Flit campaign, and his signature style of illustration began to show up in other publications, including Life Magazine and Vanity Fair. Geisel found steady work in advertising for a variety of companies, including Standard Oil, NBC, and General Electric, among others. Ted Geisel and Helen traveled the world, and during an ocean voyage to Europe, Geisel was inspired by the ship's engine rhythms to write a poem that would become his first children's book titled, And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street. The book was rejected by over 20 publishers, and Geisel said that he was on his way home to burn the manuscript when he bumped into a former Dartmouth classmate. This classmate had recently started a job as an editor in the Vanguard Press children's section. This fortunate encounter allowed Geisel to get his book published. Geisel said of this chance encounter, If I had been going down the other side of Madison Avenue, I'd be in the dry cleaning business today. And to think I saw it on Mulberry Street was the first of five books that were published with Vanguard. The last in the series was a tale of a faithful pachyderm. Horton hatches an egg. When World War II started, Geisel took to drawing political cartoons, taking aim at Hitler, Mussolini, and isolationists at home in America. In particular, Geisel went after aviation icon Charles Lindbergh. Geisel said, I found that I could no longer keep my mind on drawing pictures of Horton the Elephant. I found myself drawing pictures of Lindbergh the Ostrich. At this time, Geisel's cartoons also included inflammatory depictions of Japanese leaders and what are widely viewed as xenophobic illustrations of disloyal Japanese Americans. After the end of the war, Geisel's feelings of animosity towards the Japanese were reconciled, and he wrote the book Horton Hears a Who as an allegory for the bombing of Hiroshima and post-war occupation of Japan by the United States. In 1943, Geisel went to work with film director Frank Capra's Signal Corps in support of producing animated trading films and print material in support of the war. Here, Geisel met animators Fritz Freeling and Chuck Jones to produce cartoons featuring Private Snafu, a clumsy soldier who was voiced by, you guessed it, Mel Blanc. This was the first time that legendary animator Chuck Jones and Ted Geisel worked together, but as we'll see later... It will not be the last. During his time with Signal Corps, Geisel wrote a military training film entitled Our Job in Japan, but upon review, General Douglas MacArthur himself felt that the film was too sympathetic to the Japanese. Later, Geisel and his wife Helen went on to use this movie for the basis of a documentary film titled Design for Death, which examined 700 years of Japanese history leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. And this piece of cinema went on to receive an Academy Award for Best Documentary Film in 1947. After World War II, Geisel began publishing many more books under the name of Dr. Seuss, including If I Ran the Zoo in 1950, 
Horton Hears a Who in 1955, and two years later, The Cat in the Hat hit bookshelves. Dr. Seuss's next endeavor would hit store shelves that same year, just in time for the Christmas holiday season, with the publication of the book How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The Grinch first appeared in a short poem called The Hoobub and the Grinch, which was published in a 1955 issue of Red Book. After the success of The Cat in the Hat, Geisel began work on How the Grinch Stole Christmas with his wife Helen, who had recently suffered a small stroke. Despite her health problems, Helen served as the book's unofficial editor, a role that she had done on previous Dr. Seuss works. Keen observers, including Dr. Seuss himself, noted that the author was 53 years old at the time of the book's publication. This is the same number of years that the Grinch states that he had endured the Who's celebration of Christmas. In a 1957 edition of Red Book, Dr. Seuss admitted that the inspiration for the Grinch was, well, himself. In the interview, Dr. Seuss said that, I was brushing my teeth on the morning of the 26th of last December when I noticed a very Grinchish countenance in the mirror. Seuss said he went on to write about this sour friend that he saw reflected in the mirror and that the Grinch was an effort for him to rediscover something about Christmas that obviously I'd lost. Judith and Neil Morgan wrote in their biography, Dr. Seuss and Mr. Geisel, that it was the easiest book of his career to write, except for the conclusion. As Dr. Seuss put it, I got hung up on getting the Grinch out of the mess. I got into a situation where I sounded like a second-rate preacher or some biblical truism. Finally, in desperation, without making any statement, whatever, I showed the Grinch and the Who's together at the table and made a pun of the Grinch carving the roast beast. I'd gone through thousands of religious choices, and after three months, it came out like that. By mid-May, the book was finished, and it debuted in December of 1957, in both a book version published by Random House and in an issue of Red Book. The book was, and continues, to be a huge success, and is wildly popular with children and adults alike. And then almost a decade later, Ted Geisel would partner with Chuck Jones, his private snafu animated short film collaborator, to bring the Grinch from the printed page to the small screen. Chuck Jones, who will eventually get his own time in the spotlight here at Pick 6 Movies, was on the back end of getting let go at Warner Brothers as the need for seven-minute short animated films were no longer in demand. How is that even possible? Jones went on to set up shop over at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Animation and was producing Tom and Jerry shorts. At this time, there was a rush of animated holiday specials hitting the television airwaves. In 1964, Rankin and Bass delivered the classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. A year later, a Charlie Brown Christmas animated special hit the airwaves. And during that time, Chuck Jones and Dr. Seuss teamed up for the TV adaptation of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. To narrate the story and voice the Grinch was none other than Boris Karloff. Now, you can see Pick 6 Movie Season 3, Episode 2, 3, and 5 for more on Boris Karloff, Master of Universal Monster Mayhem. This adaptation for the small screen would be a partnership between the Cat in the Hat Productions and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Animation Studios. Now, the original book is 64 pages long with a whopping 1,355 words and a lot of illustrations. It's not enough for a full half-hour special, so to fill 30 minutes, the writers and animators took to padding the runtime with songs and additional sequences that are not in the original book. Albert Haig, whose most famous role in front of the camera was that of Benjamin Shirovsky, the music teacher in the 1980 feature film Fame, well, he wrote the music for the three original songs, Welcome Christmas, Trim Up the Tree, and You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. 
Dr. Seuss wrote the lyrics for the song, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, which was performed by Thurl Ravenscroft. If you think you've heard Mr. Ravencroft's voice before, well, it's because you probably have. He was the voice of breakfast cereal favorite Frosted Flakes as the spokescat Tony the Tiger. He voiced some of the characters in Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and he's one of the singing busts in the cemetery near the end of the Haunted Mansion attraction. Ravenscroft is not credited in the closing credits of the Seuss-inspired holiday special, and oftentimes it's Boris Karloff who gets credit for the singing. So do your part and spread the word. It's not Boris Karloff singing here. It's Mr. Thurl Ravenscroft. In the original book, the Grinch is noticeably absent his famous green hue. When the Grinch made his debut on television, sets across America were broadcasting in beautiful, beautiful color. And the decision was made to make the Grinch green, unlike the two-tone black and white illustrations from the book. It's rumored that Chuck Jones was inspired to make the Grinch green after renting a car painted in a particularly ugly shade of a similar color. The TV special debuted on December 18, 1966, with a budget of $315,000. When the special aired, it was hugely successful, as it continues to be so today. It has since been recognized as a classic, with Rotten Tomatoes giving it a 100% fresh rating on its website, and it is consistently ranked in pretty much every listing of the best holiday specials ever. It is a perfect example of a true Christmas holiday classic. At the time of the original book's publication, and up until the airing of the TV adaptation, Ted Geisel's wife Helen was an integral, influential, and driving force in the career of Dr. Seuss. The two never had any children due to Helen's health-related issues, and later in life, Ted Geisel would say of children, you have them, I'll entertain them. Helen Palmer was an author in her own right, but her work did not achieve the success of that published by Dr. Seuss. During her lifetime, Helen suffered from multiple health issues, including enduring a decade with partial paralysis from Guillain-Barre syndrome, and subsequently, she was diagnosed with cancer. Helen fell into depression due to her worsening health issues, which were compounded by suspicions of her husband, Ted, having an affair with a close friend, Audrey Diamond. In 1966, Helen committed suicide at the age of 68 with an overdose of barbiturates. In her suicide note, she wrote to her husband, Ted, I'm too old and enmeshed in everything you do and are, that I cannot conceive a life without you. She went on to write, My going will leave quite a rumor, but you can say I was overworked and overwrought. Your reputation with your friends and fans will not be harmed. After Helen's death, Audrey Diamond, divorced her husband within the year. Shortly after, Ted Geisel married Audrey, and she sent her two children away to a boarding school, saying of them, they wouldn't have been happy with Ted, and Ted wouldn't have been happy with them. In the wake of his first wife's death and his subsequent second marriage, Ted Geisel continued to publish books, but with a growing sense of social conscience. In 1971, he published The Lorax, which examines the plight of environmental responsibility. The Butter Battle Book in 1984 was an allegory to the military arms race, and in 1990, he published the go-to graduation gift, Oh, the Places You'll Go, which would be the last book published before Dr. Seuss's death. Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, died of oral cancer on September 24, 1991, at the age of 87. In 2010, Life Books published 100 people who changed the world, 
signaling out Dr. Seuss as a cultural icon. He was the only children's author included in the book, taking his place beside the likes of Michelangelo, Shakespeare, Beethoven, Dickens, Chaplin, Picasso, and Elvis. The works of Dr. Seuss continue to delight children and introduce them to the world of reading. His works have been adapted into educational TV series, Broadway musicals, video games, theme park rides, animated movies, and on a couple of occasions, live-action feature films. Which brings us to the specific subject of this episode, the year 2000's Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Earlier in his career, Dr. Seuss penned the 1953 musical fantasy film The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which was a critical and financial failure. After this silver screen disaster, Geisel never attempted another feature film, and prior to Seuss's death, he reportedly refused offers to turn his books into live-action films. But now that Ted Geisel was no longer around, his widow, Audrey Geisel, agreed to several merchandising deals, including clothing lines, accessories, CDs, and in 1998, it was announced that Audrey Geisel approved the auctioning of the film rights to How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Reportedly, any studio interested in these rights would pay at least $5 million up front, plus offer up 4% of the box office gross, 50% of the merchandising revenue and music-related material, and 70% of the income from book-related tie-ins. It was also noted that any actor submitted for the role of the Grinch had to be of comparable stature to Jack Nicholson, Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman, and any actor that had not earned $1 million on a previous film would not be considered for the role of the Grinch. Tom Shadiak, John Hughes, the Farrelly brothers, they were all reportedly in the list of cinematic suitors. Super producer Brian Grazer pitched to Audrey Geisel, but she said no. So Grazer pulled in his movie-making partner Ron Howard to assist with negotiations. Their pitch focused on the character of Cindy Lou Who and a backstory of the Grinch, who would be played by superstar comedy powerhouse Jim Carrey. Audrey Geisel insisted on meeting Jim Carrey prior to finalizing the deal. At the time, Carrey was filming the biographical motion picture Man on the Moon, where he was deep into character as Andy Kaufman, meaning that Jim Carrey literally was living his life as though he were Andy Kaufman, 24 hours a day, on and off the set. When Jim Carrey met Audrey Geisel, Carrey met her as Andy Kaufman, and he did not get out of character. Instead, Carrey, channeling Andy Kaufman, did an impression of Jim Carrey doing an impression of the Grinch. Ron Howard said of Audrey Geisel's encounter, she didn't know what to make of it. He stayed as Andy Kaufman all day, but at some point he told her, Jim wanted me to show you an impression, and it goes something like this. Jim turned away from her and then turned back slowly, making the face of the Grinch without makeup, a mask, or anything. She told me that it was the most impossible smile any human being could generate, and she was completely blown away. She gave us the rights to the book after that meeting. And with that, Ron Howard took his place in the director's chair. The screenplay was written by Jeffrey Price, who had previously written Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Doc Hollywood. Rick Baker was brought on to do the makeup for the Grinch, and he would eventually go on to win an Academy Award for his work on this film. There are stories of Jim Carrey being a real handful on the set of this film, especially as it related to the exhausted time in the makeup chair for his transformation into the Grinch. The process was so infuriating. 
that Carey threatened to quit the film and a CIA operative was brought in to coach him on techniques to remain calm in stressful situations. Beyond the makeup required to bring the Grinch to life, the cast of Who's in the movie were a massive makeup effects undertaking. All of the Who's noses were attached via applications on actors' upper lips with additional prosthetic Who teeth, Who ears, and Who wigs. With Jim Carrey as the Grinch, Taylor Momsen was brought in to play Cindy Lou Who. Momsen would later go on to play Jenny Humphrey on the CW series Gossip Girl, and she's also the frontwoman for the rock band The Pretty Reckless. Anthony Hopkins narrates the film. Jeffrey Tambor, Christine Baranski, and Molly Shannon are among the Who's of Who Who's. There's some Blink and You'll Miss Them cameos by Vern, Minnie-Me Troyer, Rain Pryor, the daughter of comedian Richard Pryor, shows up. Speaking of dads and daughter, Ron Howard's dad, Rance Howard, is a who. Ron Howard's daughter, Bryce Dallas Howard, well, she's also a who. Heck, even Ron Howard himself is an uncredited who in this thing. I mean, it's chock full of Howard family who's. The movie opened on November 17th, 2000, as the number one film with mixed critical reviews. The movie reviewer, who isn't Gene Siskel on At The Movies, a.k.a. Roger Ebert, said of the film, This is a movie that devotes enormous resources to the mistaken belief that children and their parents want to see a dark, eerie, weird movie about a sour creature who lives on top of a mountain of garbage, scares children, is mean to his dog, and steals everyone's Christmas presents. Not Gene Siskel went on to praise Carrie's high-energy performance, but ultimately says of the film, I think a lot of children are going to look at this movie with perplexity and distaste. It's just not fun. Fun or not, the film ultimately made $260 million domestically, making it the highest-grossing movie in the United States for the year 2000. And since its release, the movie is aired every Christmas holiday season, year after year. Carrie's performance as the Grinch is perhaps more well-known than the original animated version. And by most accounts, the movie is a successful adaptation, right? Perhaps that depends all on who you ask. I'm sure the studio, the producers, and the widow Geisel certainly considered a success, at least financially. But how about Dr. Seuss? What would he say? And what about Theodore Geisel? Would he consider this movie a success? And would the two share the same opinion? And is it possible for a story about how Christmas is corrupted by commercialization be a successful movie if that movie itself is a product that was arguably corrupted by commercialization? More importantly, how quick can we get Clint Howard to make an obligatory cameo in this Ron Howard joint? To answer these questions and many, many more, ladies and gentlemen, Who's and Girls, the year 2000's Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. To state for the record here, what led us to abruptly begin the show this way is you saying... Ron Howard should not direct comedies. Is that how we're bringing this episode in? Yes, because I feel like this conversation needs to be had. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, <laughs> where this season we're talking about Ron Howard should not direct comedies. <laughs> Actually, welcome to a new season of Pick 6 Movies, where uh, we are in the middle of a conversation that was happening before we recorded. So here we go. Um, this season, we are tackling the War on Christmas movies where we're going to be looking at six holiday theme films that everyone 
at least in these United States, is familiar with intimately or partially. Kicking things off is the year 2000's Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, as noted earlier, starring Jim Carrey, among others, and directed by Ron Howard, who Bo and I were previously discussing before we hit the record button, should arguably not be directing comedies. And I pose to you, hello everyone, welcome to season four. Uh, I propose that Ron Howard is responsible for some of the great comedies of all time, and I cite specifically uh, Night Shift and Gung Ho. Splash. Splash is, is amazing. There. Yes. You know what? It's not that Ron Howard shouldn't direct comedies. Ron Howard arguably shouldn't direct movies that he just doesn't give a shit about, because this movie just feels <laughs> like he... It's like they, they pitched the movie, and then they got it, and it was like, fuck, we gotta make this movie now? Well, as your introduction suggested this was essentially a bidding war because everyone knew no matter what you made of how the grinch stole christmas people were gonna go see it it was gonna make money unless something crazy happened and barring a national tragedy a 9-11 scale tragedy on the opening weekend no matter who was in it no matter what it looked like how the grinch stole christmas was gonna do well opening weekend it was the highest grossing movie for the entire year 2000 Number two behind it was Castaway. Oh, that's a national shame. Frankly, that both of those were the two highest grossing movies of 2000. I mean, Castaway's fine. I like Castaway. What we're here to talk about is how the, the Grinch stole Christmas. Let it be known from jump here. I don't care for Christmas movies at all. That's why I teed up this season. Because I knew that coming off of Halloween, this is just going to be like... A just a cold splash of water in your face. Sure. This is the we can't have nice things uh, season for me. Where it's like, oh yeah, the dizzying highs of Halloween monster movies. The horrifying nadir uh, of Christmas movies. I don't like I don't like Christmas music. I don't like Christmas lights. I, I don't think that I'm a Scrooge necessarily. I just think it's all a bit much. I just wish it would all calm down by, you know, like, let's turn it down. We got it at about a 15. Let's take it back to about a 10. You want to make America great again? I saw Christmas decorations alongside Halloween decorations this year. And that's one of those things that gets under my skin. I know I can do nothing about it as an individual other than shun, you know, which I did. I shunned the decorations. Yeah, it drives me crazy. I'm like, man, I'm here for trick-or-treat candy and Jack Lantern carving kits, and you got tinsel right beside it. It drives me up the wall, man. Let's talk about this movie. Yes. So we start off, and we go subatomic inside a snowflake. <laughs> I need, a, I need <laughs> to use you as my, my Guardo Camino for uh, some of this. Did any of this happen in the, the book or the cartoon? I don't remember anything about it being a snowflake community. No, okay. but the idea of the Who's from Horton Hears a Who and then the Who universe or Hooniverse, as it's known by <laughs> a Seuss fan such as myself, I'm not really a Seuss fan, is that the Who's are, are very, very tiny. When Horton Hears a Who, the entire Whoville in that story exists inside of a very small flower. And in this case, it exists in a snowflake. So I don't have a problem with that. As far as, you know, their size and their scope and where they exist. So that's just, you know, to me, it was more of in a galaxy far, far away. Once upon a time, we're in this fantastical world. You know, when you see the Imagine logo pop up at the front of this movie, do you think to yourself, boy, I remember when that meant something. <laughs> 
I did when I watched the movie a second time around to make these notes. No, this will fool you because you're like, oh, yeah, Imagine Entertainment. They make pretty good movies. And then you start to realize they made this and those Da Vinci Code movies. And you're like, oh, yeah, no, Imagine Entertainment's just a piece of shit along with the rest of the studios now. Sir Anthony Hopkins shows up and he's narrating this thing for us. And he tells us, you know, that we're inside a snowflake like the one on your sleeve. And there happened a story you must see to believe. Not That's not true. So as soon as we enter into Whoville, the set design in this movie does a really good job at adapting the drawing style of Dr. Seuss into a three-dimensional world. I think it looks very Seussian as far as the, the angle of the stairs and the curvature of the archways and the awkward leaning of the buildings. I really like the set design that they built in this movie. I disagree entirely. I think it's like the direction to the production department was, how can you spend the most money and still make everything look kind of cheap? It, I think it all looks pretty bad. And, and I agree <laughs> with you. It does capture the spirit of Dr. Seuss. But one of my thesis statements for this episode is going to be, sometimes you don't need a one-to-one real-life analog to the things in the books. Like, going to Universal Studios and going through the Dr. Seuss land, that's what this movie reminds me of. Of, like, oh, yeah, this all looks like something that somebody built. Like, none of it looks lived in. It's all very glossy and shiny and very cartoonish. Everything about this movie puts me off. I mean, do we want to talk about what these Whovians look like? The hideous monstrosities? They look like people who have had cleft palate reconstructive surgery. (laughs) Except for Cindy Lou, who, who they wisely are like, we can't make her look like a monster. So how about we just give her some buck teeth or something? They're like, okay, that'll work, Jim. The rest of the characters in this movie look like the stuff of nightmares, which is proof that Rick Baker can't help himself. He just makes monsters. In Whoville, it's Christmas time, and there's snow everywhere, and there are these Seuss-style decorations. And uh, we immediately see uh, that there are Who's that are, let's say, of normal human size, but they're also miniature versions of Who's, which is, again, uh, very similar to what you see in the book and the television special. But in the opening shot, we also see Santa Claus. So we have elements of what we would let's call human Christmas. Mm -hmm. But this movie's kind of sort of about the true meaning of Christmas. Not really. I'll grind that axe later. (laughs) But to that end, do the Who's believe in in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? I don't know. Well, let's consult the book of who. Do the who's believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived, you know, with the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and buried, who descended, you know, into hell and on the third day rose again, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who will come again to judge the, the, the living and the dead. The, the who's believe all of that, right? Yeah, I think so. I think what they, they have a hair to, to split with the rest of the story is on the Immaculate Conception. I think the who's in general are like, come on, come on. Anthony Hopkins in his narration says that they celebrate Easter and Arbor Day. So they have to believe in Jesus, right? I honestly haven't, hadn't given much thought to the religions of the who's because I assumed that primitive monsters like this... <laughs> Are capable of rudimentary constructions, as we've seen, but not of higher order thinking like religious concepts and art. During his narration, Anthony Hopkins says that the Who's love Christmas from the tips of their 12 toes to the like tips of their snout or something like that. 
in which I was thinking they have 12 toes, but they only have 10 fingers, which I'm like, look, how does that math work out? The who's genuinely freak me out. I, I think they look terrible and, and off putting. And one other note uh, about the introduction to this film before we start getting into story stuff, because there's like, I don't know. Uh, what six things that happen in this movie (laughs) (laughs) gotta get right on them the fact that they have anthony hopkins narrating this film seems like one of many bad choices you know because you're like okay they probably thought who is today's boris karloff hey who was the guy who is now famous for eating a, a human liver in a commercial for that movie where he's a a killer what eats people and they're like, uh, Anthony Hopkins? You want him narrating this? Yeah, that guy. He's the, he's the modern equivalent to a Boris Karloff. It's too soon. It's too soon after Silence of the Lambs for him to be narrating a children's film. In fact, it's still too soon for him to be narrating a children's film. Who would you prefer? Mel Blanc doing Boris Karloff. How about Mel Tillis? <laughs> if he occasionally had to sing the rhymes to get it out, then yes, the this movie would be two points higher on my personal scale. If Mel Tillis bombed in and was like with their whiz danglers and their their who's finglers, then <laughs> this would be the greatest movie I ever saw. In at least for Horton Hears a Who, the narrator for that particular film is Charles Osgood, and he does a really good job in that. Sure, yeah, you want someone that that sounds like they're not making a note of your home address when you talk to them, you know. <laughs> What did you say? Everly Lane. Perfect. Toughens the nipples, doesn't it, Mum? I know. Right. Right. We cut to inside of this Who store where there's a cashier who's just taking money hand over fist. And then it's here that we meet Postman Lou, who is Cindy Lou Who's dad. And he's going on and on about what gift he bought for what person. And he's speaking in some sort of Susian rhyme. And he's talking about what gifts he's bought for what person. And he's going to rhyme the word fanpa with the word grandpa. But instead he pivots and says cousin Leon. So you're expecting grandpa and you get cousin Leon. And this was the moment in watching this movie that I knew I'd made my first mistake. It was just like, <laughs> oh, this is going to be rough Uh uh-huh this movie has set the bar for the worst thing we'll watch this season pretty high or desperately low depending on how you want to look at it looking ahead to the rest of the season i'm like this may be it this may be the low point it may be all up from here you've told me which of the movies in this season you have and have not seen and i think there's a couple in there that are gonna take it a little bit lower Great. Um, Great. Postman Lou walks over to this, what looks like a small Jenga tower of wrapped presents. And he carefully removes one from the middle to reveal Cindy Lou, who who's holding all of these presents. And then Cindy Lou calls out her dad with this real, isn't this a bit much dad to which he responds? Well, this is what Christmas is all about. This is the point where I, I was like, Oh, go fuck yourself movie. Because this, this movie trying to pull off like, Hey, we're going to do a, a, a rap about commercialism it's like what you pointed out in the introduction that this is a movie that is such a craven cash grab in its execution that for it to and let's be honest it's not committing to to this theme 
it's just like, hey, I think we're going to be about how the true meaning of Christmas isn't presents. And so we're going to start setting that up here. But that's not really the point. One of the many problems I have with this movie is that the original source material, the book and the television special, which are both excellent. I highly recommend those. That the story that is being told is the story of the Grinch. The Grinch hates the Who's for a variety of reasons. But in the story, he hates the holiday season because of the singing and the noise and the presence and all of the trappings that he associates with the holiday season. The Grinch conceives a plan that if I go down and remove all of these trappings, the holiday season does not occur. They will shut up and get off my lawn. But to his surprise, the holiday arrives and it happens still the same. And the Grinch learns that Christmas is not about all of these trappings. It is more about community and family and, you know, all of the the goodness of the holiday season. I know that everyone knows this. Here's the problem with this movie is that it ignores all of that and tells the story of the who's that are all about presence and bullshit and nonsense and teaches them a lesson that they already should know. It would be as if you read someone the story of the three little pigs and at the end of it, they took away the moral of, okay, you're saying if someone damages a relative's house, then murder is an acceptable response. (laughs) I mean, it's true, but yes. But this movie completely misses the point of the book and the TV special, which is what I just outlined. In this movie, as we're going to talk a little bit later, it's a bunch of who's that have their heads up their asses the whole time. And until the very, very end of the movie, they are like, oh yeah, that's what Christmas is about. But it's not. They don't even learn that lesson. You know what? Let's just continue. It's really frustrating that this movie does not have the chops to pull this kind of shit off. This kind of reinvention of this story. So then we go to a slasher movie up on the slopes of Mount Who or whatever. As It's Mount Crumpet. <laughs> and these hideous monstrosities together, <laughs> are clawing their way up to the Grinch's house. And it's a whole like, I dare you to go knock on the Grinch's door. And uh, because sometimes they talk in rhyme and sometimes they don't, it doesn't really matter in this movie. And one of the kids does, in fact, go up to the door and a big Grinch head explodes out and scares the kids. And they go tumbling ass over tea kettle down the mountain. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you really did not care for this movie at all. When the, you know, when that head explodes out, it's like a Grinch head. It reminded me of, and this is a deep cut, it reminded me of those custom culture hot rod monsters. Do you remember those? No. <laughs> Go look it up and you'll All right. you'll agree with me. So these, these teenagers fall, as you say, uh, ass over tea kettle uh, down the side of the mountain. And then it's here that we get introduced to the Grinch. And his dog, Max, because when the big head pops out, Max is barking into a funnel, which is making the noise for this giant, scary face that frightens away, what, random people that come up to visit him? Your Jehovah's Witnesses, your, I guess, Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) Let's talk about Max in this movie, because (laughs) they have clearly 
attached some sort of cocker spaniel ears to this mutt's head. He looks like Benji with floppy ears. I didn't do a whole heck of a lot of extensive research on this, but I did. One thing I did find was that um, Max the dog was played by six different dogs mm. that were these like mixed breed shelter rescues, and their names were Kelly, Chip, Topsy, Stella, Zelda, and Bo. And the last of which was named after you, I found out. Oh, that's nice. I hope that dog <laughs> lived a, a happy and fruitful life and uh, put this movie behind him. <laughs> All the dogs wore these little headpieces uh, because I guess they were bald and earless. And uh, <laughs> it's here we get to see the Grinch for the first time, but we don't get to see his whole face. And he's digging through the trash and he finds an onion and then he takes a bite and then he rubs it on his armpits because he's the Grinch and he's gross. And then we finally get to see the Grinch's full face when he announces that he's going to go down to Whoville because he wants some social social interaction i have no idea why this character is just suddenly decided to go down to whoville do you know do you care i the answer let me answer the second question first no then i don't know why he's going down to whoville this is a big problem i have with this grinch character in this movie because the grinch is the monster who lives on the mountain and the fact that he is sneaking into Whoville like some kind of Christmas terrorist and just defiling shit. I, on, look, on the on the one hand, I respect the action, but <laughs> I could get behind the what he's actually doing because it's not it's the equivalent of putting shit in a paper bag and lighting it on fire uh, on someone's porch. You know, it is that level of terrorism that the Grinch is engaged in. He called the shit poop. Oh my God. <laughs> this is the greatest day of our lives. When he goes into town, he puts on this cloak and this oversized mask that has buck teeth across the grin and these giant wide eyes. And dude, it is terrifying. He looks like if Obi-Wan Kenobi stumbled into a Bloomhouse movie. Right. Like if he was one of the purgers or something. Yes. Yeah. It's a bad look. I don't think it's any more horrifying than the actual who's. Uh, but it is disturbing. <laughs> and if we could talk for one second about this voice that Jim Carrey is doing for the Grinch, which is Boris Karloff by way of Tony Clifton. You can hear a lot of that Tony Clifton uh, impression in some of the Grinch moments. But there's a hint of the Karloff. Sometimes he just sounds vaguely British. It's weird. It's a weird accent. It's all over the place. And sometimes it's more Karloff and sometimes it's more Clifton. And I don't know, man. I don't know what he's doing in this movie. Like, it, it's one of those Robin Williams Aladdin things, but just garbage. He definitely is doing his version of Boris Karloff. There are times where he says words like package and it sounds like Karloff with his accent. I even have a line that uh, he sounds a lot like Tony Clifton as well. Yeah, he does it. There's, there's, I, I think there's a lot of of Sean Connery. It's just like you, you, you want to know how to steal the Who's Christmas? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. That's the Whoville way. That's how you steal Christmas, and that's how you get Santa. <laughs> how do you think he feels now? Better or worse? <laughs> that's my favorite line in that movie. 
Chip Carey does another thing where he throws his arms up in the air a lot uh, in triumphant comedic glory. And I really like Jim Carey in certain roles. Um, other things he's like you said, it's kind of like Robin Williams where he's just on so much. It's it's a bit overwhelming. I don't know. But that's what people were paying to see. It was the year 2000. I mean, he had had a string of hits. And when you paid to see him, you wanted to see, you know, Jim Carey from Ace Ventura. You wanted to see Jim Carey from that Batman and Robin movie and, you yeah. know, all of that stuff. That's that's what you came to see. Jim Carrey as the Grinch. And that's what it delivers. But it's a bit just all over the place. Yeah. So while he's being Christmas terrorist uh, down in Whoville, the two kids what climbed the mountain to uh, scare the Grinch or uh, touch his door or whatever they were doing. It it turns out that they're Luhu's stoner kids who come running down the mountain with this tale of terror where they're like, hey man, we went up the mountain and the Grinch showed up and he's coming down to kill everybody, man. And they're like, ah, bullshit. Yeah, like the mayor uh, shows up, uh, who's Jeffrey Tambor, and uh, is like, hey, shut the fuck up, kids. Um, <laughs> like, we got a Christmas to put on. He's basically the mayor from Jaws for no reason. Where he's just trying to ignore the Grinch until this particular problem comes up and bites him in the ass. He's followed by Clint Howard, who has a pretty prominent role by Clint Howard's standards. And he's basically Smithers to Tambor's Mr. Burns. Um, and <laughs> yes. yeah, the mayor the mayor runs the town and Clint Howard's character basically just wants to fuck the mayor. <laughs> if you did it, sir. <laughs> That's right, you'd be fit to be tied. The mayor goes over to Postman Lou and reminds him that this year marks the 1,000th hubilation. And he gives Postman Lou shit because his kids were up there dicking around with the Grinch's place. And um, there's an edit here where the two boys are frozen. Then they cut back to them and they're not frozen. Then they cut back to them and they are frozen. <laughs> and it's just like, you know what? The editor on this movie gave less of a shit than I did about watching it. So let's just let the good times roll. Hey, we got any any coverage of them frozen in this shot? No. All right. <laughs> Cut. Print. Right. It's a wrap. People. Put the yeah. gate on it. If I had watched all, like, whatever we are into the movie at this point, like, 15 minutes in, if I had seen those 15 minutes assembled in the order in which they hit the theater, I'd have given up, too. We're, we're in the post office and uh, all the who's are giving postman Lou a bunch of packages to send overnight. And at the beginning we see Whoville from up in the sky. And this community is not that big. It's pretty isolated. So first, I don't understand why they have a postal service at all, because you could probably walk across this whole city in maybe five minutes, which the who's I guess are just lazy. I don't know. <laughs> It gives them something to do. It's like those assisted living facilities, you know, where they have a lot of, you know, Baccarat and <laughs> shuffleboard and shit. It's just like, oh, I got to be a shuffleboard on Tuesday at three. No, you don't. It's just something to do. <laughs> In the back of the post office, Cindy Lou is talking to her dad and asks why no one talks about the Grinch. And Postman Lou tells his daughter that the Grinch isn't a who, he's a what, and that the Grinch doesn't like Christmas, which... I'm just going to go ahead and start talking about this now. <laughs> the reason that everyone doesn't like the Grinch in this movie is because he looks different and specifically he has green skin. Yep. <laughs> this is a town of racists. This is essentially like Dusseldorf in th 38 before <laughs> shit really popped off. Sent the Grinch <laughs> to the ghetto, yeah? They are all about this guy who comes down and steals all their stuff. 
And then they celebrate anyway. But at the end, he brings back all their goods at the end of the movie. And, you know, they learn that they don't need presents and decorations to celebrate Christmas. That's what the movie should be about. But instead, what this movie is about, they're saying like, hey, that guy has a skin color that's different from me. Let's make fun of him and treat him as an outcast. Better yet, let's also make fun of the fact that he has no money and we'll eventually drive him to the edge of town where he will live in trash. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh huh. Don't let the sun set on your ass in this town, Grinch. These are simple folk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> monsters. <laughs> They're monsters. They look like monsters. They behave like monsters. What did you expect? Welcome, Sonny. Date my daughter. These are simple folk. Salt of the earth. You know, morons. <laughs> True words were never spoken. <laughs> you know what? Just re- rewind that a few times, uh, folks, because you want to commit that one to memory. It applies to a lot more than you think it does. It turns out that the Grinch is in the back of the post office and he starts mixing up mail and causing mischief. And then he starts throwing jury duty summons into people's mailboxes. And the Grinch has no ability to deliver jury summons. That's just stupid. <laughs> right. He has now crossed the line into a federal offense. With this tampering of the mailboxes. Before it was all fun and games, but now he's looking at some serious time. Have you ever served on a jury? Yeah. No, I've never served on a jury, but I was, I made it to the second round of jury selection one time. I served on a jury one time and I don't want to brag. I was the, the foreman. Nice. And, um, and we sent a 19 year old girl to prison on her third strike. She had shot her boyfriend with this high powered BB gun. He was fooling around with some other girl. Mm-hmm. And then she just went and grabbed this BB gun and shot him up a bunch of times. And I, I guess it was a, not, I guess it was a felony. So right now she's in prison and I'm here with you talking about this stupid ass movie. Huh? I, in the world of fucked up place. Yeah. I don't know that a BB gun warrants a felony. If you'd seen this gun and after in the number of times she shot him, it was like some classy felony. It was terribly sad. It was awful. People always complain about serving on a jury because it like interrupts their day to day life. I was on this jury and all six of us were just like, oh, my God, we're going to send this young woman to prison. And it was gut wrenching. Yeah, it was worse than this movie. And this movie's pretty bad. Yeah. that Yeah, that stinks. We We should have no laws is my vote. <laughs> just become a nation of anarchy. I mean, we're a small half step away now. Cindy Lou goes into the back of the post office and she finds the Grinch's murder mask on the ground (laughs) and she picks it up. And I guess that for Cindy Lou, finding this horrific disguise was not a surprise in the back of the post office. I guess that's sort of a day-to-day occurrence. She looks around, you know, to see if there's somebody there who may have dropped this this getup that you would wear to commit murder. And then up in the corner, we see the Grinch and Max the dog are stuck up on the ceiling like Spider-Man. How How is the Grinch stuck up to the wall like that? There's a lot of Acme bullshit in this movie. There's a rocket sled <laughs> later. Again, this is one of the problems with the movie is that it tries to tries to adhere to cartoon logic but it's live action and it doesn't work it's it shouldn't be one-to-one where you can just leap onto a ceiling and hold onto it like the spitterman and your dog too 
and then it's never addressed again because it's like, well, you've got a superpower now, and why aren't you using that more? You have the ability to scale walls. Well, it's it's, it's at this point that Max the dog sneezes, and the Grinch says, Gazuntite. And then Cindy Lou looks up and sees the Grinch, and she freaks out, and then the Grinch responds with a real Ned Flanders falsetto scream. The Grinch jumps down, and Cindy Lou says, you're the, 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 and then the Grinch repeats her words and says, the, 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 the Grinch. I did not like the comedic timing of this. I think she should have said, you're the, 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 and then he says, the Grinch. Right. It's it's drawn out. There's so many moments in this oh. that just the comedic timing is off, or they give the punchline in the middle, or they forget to give the punchline, or the editing fucks it up. It's like, who's there? Little old lady who? Knock, knock. What are you talking about? Yeah. Like, Do you understand how jokes work? No, it's just they let the cameras roll on Jim Carrey for this movie. So everything takes twice. Every scene that he's in takes twice as long to get from point A to point B because he's just hamming it up all over the place. Oh, he's he's got a joke for everything in this movie. And, <laughs> oh, it just drives me up the goddamn wall. Um, because it's not funny. It's all just either pop culture references or him hamming it up. And none of it strikes me as being entertaining. It's just making this movie take forever. And it's already like, there is not a character to get behind in this movie other than potentially Cindy Lou who, who's in it. Not that much at the end of the day, you know, if she's our protagonist, she's kind of a shitty one. I don't think she is. I don't think there is a protagonist in this movie. I think it's just a bunch of shit that happens and they roll credits. Although I do like the fact that he tries to up the felony rap by leaving her in the machine. You know, like his initial response is like, oh, she gets sucked into the gift sorter. And he's just like, well, that problem's taken care of. Oh, bye. He does not give a shit about her when she falls into this like package sorting machine, which is his fault to some degree because she's frightened by him and then falls in. But this is the part where Max the dog bites him on the ass. And then this alarm whistle goes off in the back because the machine's all jammed up. And then so the Grinch pulls Cindy Lou out of the sorting machine. I propose not to save her, but to shut off the alarm whistle and keep from being discovered. Um, Or, you know, to your point, perhaps he knows that if she dies, he could be convicted of manslaughter or maybe it's who slaughter are they are a lot of who puns in this <laughs> sure I, I don't know what their laws are this is the first moment in the movie where i really heard tony clifton show up when she thanks the grinch for saving her and he's like i didn't save you who do you think you are going around here things ah, going around going out there taking things that belong to you i don't think that fall away all right, two things. One, my note here is Carrie chews on every word like it's gristle in the, in this scene in particular. Also, have you seen that documentary, uh, Jim and Andy, on, I have. on on the Netflix? That, along with the comedians and cars getting coffee with Jim Carrey, has convinced me that Jim Carrey is a terrible, terrible person and not worthy <laughs> of anyone's love. But see, I liked him more. After, I liked him more after both of those. Oh, I watching that Jim and Andy documentary. All I could think was, do you know how much every person on that set must have hated him? 
of like, look, man, we all got a job. I'm thinking of the gaffers and the people putting the tape on the cables to run the lights. And then this asshole is cavorting off, getting too drunk to come to set. And you're like, <laughs> God damn it. I just want to get home to see my kids. You know, I'm working a union job here. And this dude has has got to channel the mystical energy of the subject of this movie. And that's why I'm going to miss my kids' first steps. I see your point, And I agree with your point. But my perspective on it is that he's just fucking batshit crazy. And he's just owning it. Like he's just a nut job. And and I I enjoyed that about it. Of like he's one of those people that's just somehow able to just be this just crazy person in everyday society. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I find him reprehensible and every frame of this movie is like exhibit G through double J <laughs> of reasons that I kinda hate Jim Carrey now. Like as an artist, I can still like stuff he does. But just as a person, I'm like, I think I think you're just an asshole. Cindy Lou thanks the Grinch for saving her. He gives it a real slowly I turned step by step <laughs> when he looks over at her and he's like, I didn't shave you. And then he grabs wrapping paper and then proceeds to constrain her, you know, her, her head to toe. And it's. I don't know. It's like the kind of binding that would be the equivalent if I just sort of gave you one pass with single ply toilet paper around your biceps and chest. It's it, it's completely nothing. Let me ask you a question about Cindy Lou Who getting wrapped up. Uh, this has nothing to do with Cindy Lou Who particularly. It's more of a theoretical question. How many clicks does it take you to get to porn if you type in women wrapped in Christmas paper? Like like on top to bottom? Of like your your Google search result? Yes. Google search results? Yes. As soon as you hit enter, the clock is ticking. How many clicks? It's definitely on the first page. <laughs> right. I'm thinking I'm thinking three is extreme. If you change it to Cindy Lou Who wrapped in paper, it's the top result. It's deviant art. Yes. <laughs> some hentai Cindy Lou Who bursting out of some christmas wrappings sure lou who comes in and finds his daughter just ripping through her bindings um the grinch is now gone but cindy lou is thrilled with joy uh because this movie that she's in pretty much gets everything wrong lou who is happy because cindy is practicing her wrapping skills by what encasing herself in paper that doesn't make any sense <laughs> right and here we see cindy where cindy lou who gets her inherent keen sense of deductive reasoning meaning she gets everything wrong because she's an idiot next we head to the home of uh, cindy lou and her dad where we meet her mom betty who is played by Pick Six movie's favorite Molly Shannon. Molly Shannon does nothing in this movie whatsoever. She shouldn't really have even been in it, but she is. Yeah, she is um, also a monster, uh, much like Bill Irwin. Her, her mom, Betty Lou, is putting an excessive amount of lights on their house so that she can have the most impressive display in Whoville. And her plan is quantity over quality. And she's also including all of their indoor light fixtures in addition to normal Christmas lights. And she's wanting to one-up her neighbor, Martha May, who is played by Christine Baranski. So at this point, it feels like you're creating a bit of a, of a rivalry between Betty Lou and Martha May. They're going to be at odds with one another. 
Oh, that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. Don't don't speak too soon. Yeah. It, it's a real nothing of a storyline. They mention it again at the end. Spoilers. Yeah. Betty Lou's on her house and she's putting up all these lights. And then Martha May comes out and she's wearing an outfit that one would don when doing a very sexy version of Santa Baby drunk at the <laughs> office Christmas party. Yes. It's it's like it's a this, bad Santa kind of. Like a naughty female Santa Halloween costume uh-huh. or something. It's it's low cut and you can see her cleavage. It's high cut so you can see her legs. And then Martha May shows off this new red cannon gun device that just easily shoots strings of lights onto her house, completing her display in seconds. While in the background, Betty Who is looking on with jealousy and she's pulling the strand of lights that is somehow attached to a bundle of lights that are now ensnared around her husband, Lou. I think this is meant to be a joker to be funny because as Betty Lou leans forward, this glob of lights with her husband in it sort of goes up and down. And it's just yet another example of this feels like you're trying to do something funny, but it's not. It's just confusing. Yeah, it's horribly unfunny. Uh, The fact that the neighbor has an outlaw Josie Wales Gatlin gun for Christmas lights is pointless to the rest of the film. Except, like I said, you know, this one line where she's like... I always liked your Christmas lights at the end of the movie. Again, sorry to get ahead, but it doesn't matter. Just like everything else in this movie. And it's such a shame to see Molly Shannon wasted so much in this movie. Because she is, again, pick six favorite. She is naturally funny. Even this like attempt to weave some kind of C or D plot into this film, it, it just feels pointless. It feels like there are too many writers trying to adapt this very simple story and flush it out into something feature length. And there are all these dead, like narrative dead ends like this one littered throughout the movie. And it's incredibly frustrating as a viewer, uh, especially once you realize, Oh, none of this is really going to pay off. And none of it's funny. Oh, no. uh, The, the very next scene after this Christmas light scene, Lou and Betty go into the house and their phone is ringing and Lou answers it. And then the person on the other end of the line says, like, is your defibrillator running or some Seuss word? And then Lou's like, why? Yes, it is. And then we cut to the Grinch and he tells him, well, you better go catch it before it runs away. And then he cracks himself up and look, nobody. And I mean, nobody who saw this movie in the history of forever is, has found that funny or will find that funny. It's just stupid. Yeah. Hey, shizzle chest. I fell down the stairs and lost my glasses. Yeah, the fact that the Grinch is doing prank calls at all does not make sense to the character as I I conceive of the Grinch. And maybe that's my problem. Maybe I'm bringing baggage to this film where I'm like, hey, I think the Grinch behaves a certain way. Not as this Loki-like prankster that is just bouncing around in town. And in fact, when he makes this phone call, I'm like, oh, I guess he went home. No, he was just using a payphone or whatever, or a pay diddler or whatever they call it in Whoville. And (laughs) that's something completely different. Yeah. Pay diddler is what I have to do on holidays. No, it's terrible. But he he turns around and he's like, all right, Max, it's time to go home. And they ride the trash tube up to, it doesn't lead directly to his house, but it shoots him up uh, the reverse. To the city dump. Yeah. It's the reverse Goonies tube. Can you imagine the smell of that tube? Yeah, it's just nothing but the collective shits of Whoville (laughs) have made the journey 
up this tube, ironically enough, to the top of the mountain. They make the sliding in this tube look like it's so much fun because this is a children's movie. In reality, you would come out the other end just riddled with tumors and cancer. Yeah, you know, his green hair matted to his body with just sludge and coffee grounds and who shit after they crash in the trash heap the grinch pops out and he's greeted with a smack in the head of a red garbage bag that on the outside it says hazardous waste and the o in hazardous is replaced with a skull and crossbones because that's fun right what is again what is the lesson we're trying to teach here that the grinch is so foul and disgusting that genuine hazardous waste is somehow good to him like oscar the grouch or something or you try to convince kids like no 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 this stuff isn't really that bad the intention is unclear and that's not a good thing for this film well what's worse than that is the next scene where cindy lou who starts singing this song called where are you christmas (laughs) which (laughs) this was this is my next moment in the movie where i felt like i had made another huge mistake Not since all thoughts go to heaven have we been saddled with a song this bad. If it hadn't been for you and I having to to suffer through this conversation, I would have turned the movie off right here, right now. I would have just been like, I'm done with this. (laughs) Yeah, my note here is, boy, this song really throws the brakes on, huh? It does. It grinds the movie to a fucking halt. Where it's just like, oh, first of all, poor Taylor Momsen, who I like quite a bit as the singer for The Pretty Reckless. They've got a couple of tunes that I think are pretty rocking little numbers. So she's not a bad singer at all. But I guess when you're, I don't know, whatever she was when she made this movie, eight or nine or whatever, that nobody's that good a singer. And also it doesn't help that this song is utter garbage from bottom to top. The lyrics actually go, my world is changing I'm rearranging. Does that mean Christmas changes too? The one you used to know, I'm not the same one. See what the time's done. Is that why you have let me go? I couldn't tell if she's having like a crisis of faith, if she's going through puberty. Like, is she, she's hot what for the is Grinch. happening in this? I don't know. She has a Grinch fetish. I'm pretty sure that Cindy Lou Who is the kid in this family that's going to reject all of her parents' beliefs and end up being like a Wiccan or living on some commune out in the woods with four kids that somehow have six dads. They're probably going to throw her out before that ever happens because she's the only one in the family that doesn't look like one of those Twilight Zone pig surgeons. They're probably going to toss her out as a freak because she looks halfway normal. All right, you noted earlier that Cindy Lou Who is our protagonist and, and in the setup you know they pitch this as being sort of her story what does her character want like what is her motivation is she trying to prove to the town that the grinch is a good guy because he's not even at the end of the movie he's still an asshole he learns nothing is she looking for the true meaning of christmas because that that doesn't happen because they they don't even mention jesus (laughs) yeah they, they unwisely avoid discussion of the reason for the season It's the war on Christmas, man. The crux of her problem is she thinks that Christmas is about something more than presents. And everyone around her is like, fuck that shit. It's all about presents. Shut up, Cindy Lou Who. And that's her crisis of conscience is, am I somehow, I I guess according to the song, has Christmas left her behind somehow in her wizened years? Or is she just fundamentally incapable of understanding the appeal of presence? She is a hippie in a family of conservatives. 
Maybe she just don't want nothing for Christmas. She's writing her letter to Santa and she's like, Santa, I don't know what to ask for. Everyone's like, hey, it's all about presents. She's like, I don't want anything. Okay, well then guess what? You don't get anything. How about you just take one for the team and you say, hey, I don't want anything. But how about one of them uh, Christmas light machine guns for mom? Huh? There you go. Why don't you quit being such a selfish little brat, Cindy Lou, for once? We cut up to the Grinch's lair, which looks a lot like the Batcave. It's like um, it's like a steampunk discovery center. The Grinch takes this bag of toxic waste and catapults it at a poster of the mayor to show us that he doesn't like him. And we're going to find out why a little bit later. The Grinch then puts on a sheer kimono, which does the Grinch need clothes? Because sometimes he wears clothes and then sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, it, it's a real porky pig question mark for me of like, why why the shirt and no pants? Why is the Grinch uh, only like when he puts on his little later hosen outfit or whatever, like the uh, the bugler outfit? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, is that necessary? Because most of the time he just wanders around being the Grinch and letting that Grinchy cock dangle. It's here that the Grinch pulls out an x-ray machine to look at the size of his heart, which is teeny tiny. And this is a tip of the hat to the television special. During this x-ray, we also see that there is a fork lodged inside his rib cage, oh. which is alarming. I don't know what kind of health care is available to him, but he needs to seek immediate attention by a medical professional. You should not be walking around with a fork inside your body cavity look his only option is who medical care and he's lucky that he got into the city and left the city with his his skin intact he's lucky <laughs> he wasn't hung from a beam outside Who- whoville as a warning to all other grinches that whoville will not be infested with their kind i know it's redundant but the grinch is a jerk and <laughs> I know, and how do I know this is because how he treats his dog, Max, he pretends to throw a stick and then Max runs off, but there was no stick. And then the Grinch calls his own dog stupid and notes that he's smarter than this dog. The problem is that in the end, the Grinch does not redeem himself in this movie at all. The town just ends up realizing that they're a bunch of separatist and, and clearly racist, and they just sort of accept him for the jerk that he is. It It is not, and I repeat, is not about the true meaning of Christmas in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> no, it thinks it is, which is the real uh, shame. One quick aside, when uh, you were talking about the Grinch just being an asshole in this movie, which is correct, and in fact, the note I have is... He is just an asshole in this, which reminds me, Sharky's Machine is the best movie we've ever done. <laughs> just a little footnote. But there's another thing that happens in this stupid scene where when he takes off his socks, they crawl away. And it's another one of those examples of this would be okay if this were all animated. If this whole thing were animated, this movie would be much more tolerable. But because it's live action, it adds some degree of sadness or something, of despair to the proceedings. But I just find this movie depressing to watch. Well, Merry Christmas. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, there, there's also this moment where the Grinch is arguing with his Echo of like, you're an idiot. And and the Echo says, you're, you're an idiot. Or he says, I'm an idiot. And the Echo says, you're an idiot. And it occurred to me that maybe what we're dealing with here is we have a guy who eats broken glass and yells at imaginary voices. Maybe the Grinch is just a meth head. I mean, look at those teeth. I suppose that he's just a manic schizophrenic. 
<laughs> right? Like, he's got a real problem, for sure. And, I mean, he's never going to get the kind of mental health care he needs in Whoville. He's not quite the recluse that you know from the TV special at all. He's just bouncing all over the place. And he, he cracks a lot of jokes. And it's nice that Max the dog is there because at least he has an audience of one. But there are definitely times where the Grinch is cracking jokes out loud to no one. It kind of reminded me when Rodney Dangerfield was on The Simpsons. And he's like cracking jokes and he's just like, who the hell am I talking to? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why am I making these jokes? No one's around. Or as I call it, my dinner for one. Cindy Lou, for some unknown reason, decides to go on a hunt to find out about the history of the Grinch. And she goes to talk to these two old Spencers who we find out were the ones who raised the Grinch from a baby. And it doesn't make any sense because how does Cindy Lou, a child that arguably knows nothing, have the insight to go talk to these two old women? Right. Where does she get the lead? Yeah. She just shows up at their house and she has a recorder. She's like, now tell me in your own words, how did you all raise the Grinch? Right. I guess somewhere on the cutting room floor is the scene where she went to, you know, the Hall of Records and was like, I demand to know where the Grinch's birth certificate is. And they're like, uh, uh, there are no birth certificates. It's all umbrella based. And so she has to go to the umbrella factory and they're the ones who tell her. Yeah. These two old ladies tell Cindy Lou that babies fall from the skies in these bassinets with umbrellas and they land on doorsteps, which for no good reason in this movie, we get a fucking the boss joke. In this umbrella scene where, like, one of the umbrella who's lands, one of these little infant monsters lands in the arms of a who. And he's like, hey, this one looks like my boss. It's like, whoa, 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 how the Grinch stole Christmas. Hardy, har, har. Right? Like, you aiming for the cheap seats on this one? Well, that's that's only made less offensive by the next scene where we see the Grinch as a baby. And he's a hideous looking infant. Fuck. His bassinet which is green and his umbrella has holes in it it's all shitty to begin with as his bassinet lands it 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 hits the doorstep of the old ladies' houses and it turns out that they're inside having a holiday party that involves um all the participants dropping their keys into a bowl (laughs) essentially having what is known as a key party Uh where you drop your keys in people grab those keys then they head off to other rooms and then indiscriminately fuck each other that's the joke that's made there, correct? Yeah. And uh, it's sexy. No getting around that. Um, well, in this in this scene, there are people like riding each other. And there's a one character is like slapping the ass of another person. It's a real wild, sexy party. And then you see keys going into a fishbowl. And it's like, w- what? Yeah. It's like how the Grinch stole the ice storm. <laughs> I even paused for a moment. I thought, well, maybe these are car keys. And they're... They're trying to be responsible and not letting people leave the house if they've had too much to drink. But as the movie progresses, there's only two cars in this whole town. So it's a straight up 1970s key party. Yeah. Hosted by these two old ladies. And, you know. Oh, you know, as you get older, you're willing to experiment. <laughs> you know, when, when they talk about this umbrella-based baby economy that we're dealing with, I get where umbrellas come from but how do they fly you know i know the babies are little miracles but this isn't answering all my umbrella questions christmas magic i guess i don't know yeah none of this is adding up you get to the age-old question of sure the babies come from umbrella bassinets but where do the umbrella bassinets and the babies come from who's making those jesus hmm 
Well, all right. That, that answers some questions then. Isn't it insane that when I say Jesus, there's part of it's like, you know what? You know what? That actually helps to make a little more sense mm-hmm. in this world. Yeah. If there were an all-knowing, all-powerful deity that was bombing in to be like, here are some children who's, that would make more sense than the bassinets and umbrellas as far as I'm concerned. But we, all right, so we get into the Grinch's backstory here and this child Grinch, not the infant Grinch that we saw in the bassinet, but when we flash forward a little bit and he's just the, the school age Grinch is one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen put to film. I didn't mention this in the intro, but the actor who plays him as a child is Josh Ryan Evans. And we'll get into this in a little more detail here in just a second, but when Evans was only 37 inches tall, and I think he lived to be like 20 or 21. And when I was younger, I worked at an NBC affiliate when the soap opera Passions was on TV. I'd never watched soap operas, but it would be on in the like on the the monitors within like the the newsroom. And Passions was a soap opera that featured witches and warlocks and like portals into hell. And this guy Evans played a character named Timmy on the show, and he was a doll that had been brought to life by a witch, and he was this little mini me sidekick and i can't say this for certain but i think that that show was better than this movie it sounds great (laughs) yeah why are we not watching that right now i don't know man it was full of kinds of crazy shit what we learn in this scene is that this whole deal with the grinch and why he is all pissed off is that it's just some crazy lover's triangle where the grinch is kind of into Martha, the Christine Baranski who monster, and she's into him, but the mayor as a kid is into her and is just constantly trying to sabotage the Grinch and pointing out the fact that he's, you know, a different color and that he doesn't belong there with the rest of them. And wouldn't he be better in a ghetto? And... And the Grinch decides he's going to make this ornament for Martha when she kind of gives him the green light for like, hey, I think you're kind of cute, Grinch. Yeah, but the way she gives him the green light is she's making eyes at him and she's licking on this lollipop and making eyes at the Grinch. And did you ever see that video of those two girls on the gong show and their whole talent was eating popsicles? No. (laughs) but i will later when i have some alone time it's more uncomfortable than you're imagining right now and this is only a shade or two lighter than that of like watching this child lick a lollipop and make goo goo eyes at this troll of a green nightmare across the classroom maybe like the subtext of this movie is all these who's and i'm not saying they represent a particular race that might also begin with WH, but the young women in the race of who's have a little grinchy fever and are constantly like, hey, this green guy looks all right. I think I'm into it. Once you go green, you know what I mean? Yeah. Stevie Wonder would sing a theme song for a movie based around such a thing. <laughs> Wait, what are we talking I about? I don't know. Not, certainly not a Spike Lee film. 
during this sequence, Cindy Lou is not only interviewing the spinsters that raised the Grinch, she's interviewing the mayor and she's interviewing Martha May, who is our uh, sexy Santa cannon shooting next door neighbor. And in it, the mayor as a, as a fat kid tells the Grinch that girls don't like men with facial hair. And he says that the Grinch is eight years old and he has a beard, which I don't know, man, every guy I've ever known, as soon as you start getting facial hair, the chicks are like, Hey, he's got it going on. I don't see that as being a negative. Sure. Yeah. It's the biological impulse of seeing uh, another mammal sexually maturing. This movie is not good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's really rotten because so they, they were like, Hey, uh, women don't like, uh, hairy guys, uh, which is only true when you get older, really. But (laughs) anyway, so he runs off and has this device used in most Hellraiser films. That is like a series of garden rakes that move back and forth, uh, thinks to some motorization. And he tries to shave himself and he cuts himself a bunch. But he doesn't have a beard. That's what doesn't make any sense. He has like green fuzzy hair on his head and he has sideburns, but he does not have facial hair as they describe in this movie. Yeah. yeah he's just shaving parts of his body here. It'd be like if I were shaving my back before a date, which I do, ladies. But the kids are making fun of him for having a beard, but he doesn't, which... You know what? Who who cares? Right. So they he shows up at school and he's all embarrassed because he's got a bunch of cuts on his face. And as soon as he reveals himself, he comes in wearing a bag. And then they're like, take off the bag. And he hides behind a book. And then finally they get him to put the book down. And there's his all cut up face. Uh, with a bunch of toilet paper, bits of toilet paper on his face from uh, shaving so badly. And then they mock him mercilessly, which is correct in that scenario. Um, If you're in an elementary or middle school scenario and someone is different or has exposed a weakness, you go for the fucking jugular, kids. And that's what they do to the point that the Grinch is driven out of town by his, his shame and his anger and his rage. And just climbs the mountain. One thing I I will give the movie credit for is when the Grinch gets pissed off, he has made this tree topper for Martha May. And then uh, out of garbage, like he fashioned it together. It shows that he has some skills to build things, which comes in a little bit later. So I'll give the movie credit for that. When he goes nuts, he smashes the tree topper. And then we see Martha May pick up the pieces. And in watching the movie thinking, okay, this is going to come back later on like she will have the pieces and have put them back together to show that she was still very much interested in this green troll of a man um but it doesn't happen at all but at the same time the grinch when he gets so pissed off and in his fit of rage he picks up this christmas tree that's in the classroom and just throws it across the room which shows that he's tiny but he's really strong which again later on in the movie there's a feat that the Grinch performs when he picks up the sleigh that shows him being really strong. So I was like, okay, well you're at least trying a little bit here. Yeah, I suppose, but it feels like all of that stuff is undone by the fact that he also rocket slits himself into a wall. And it's just like, well, I guess it's back to the drawing board, Mac. It's like, well, if nothing has consequence in this movie, then, and there's no rules, apparently, to the way physics work, then, yeah, so what? He picks up a thing. Okay. I mean, that's as reasonable as anything else happening in this film. (laughs) (laughs) You know? 
our next scene we get we get the adult grinch atop mount crumpet and here he's standing naked he's not wearing any clothes <laughs> and he's reading the phone book and just hating all of the who's one by one alphabetically and at this point it should be noted it is christmas eve <sighs> We're back at the Hubilation and the the mayor's holding court to determine who's going to be the cheermeister, um, which is the elected, you know, grand poobah of all things Christmas. And Cindy Lou nominates the Grinch and the whole town gasps. Cindy Lou uh, schools the mayor and says that in the book of who their town Bible that there's again, there's no mention of Jesus Christ in this book at all. Um <laughs> That, in the that is at least mentioned in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then Cindy Lou says that no matter how different a who may appear, he will always be welcomed with holiday cheer. Again, who's are racist. Mm -hmm. And that's the central theme of the movie. You know, essentially is that they're trying to say that by accepting others, no matter how they look, especially when it comes to the color of their skin, that's what you need to do during Christmas time. Is this even a Christmas movie? I have no idea. Now, I think you could watch this and Mississippi Burning back to back and, and really get a powerful message. I'm just trying to tell you a story about my Grinch. You know what? Do them in the opposite order and then don't watch this movie and you're going to be just fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, you start with a great film with Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman. <laughs> And then you end with a bottle of bourbon. The mayor starts just making shit up from the book of who. And then Cindy Lou calls him out for being a, a liar a, as a political official. And then the mayor is embarrassed because he has a sense of shame about lying as a political official. Remember when that was a thing back in the early 2000s? 2016. <laughs> it's all, it's all gone. Cindy Lou says that whoever is selected as cheermeister is the person who needs uh, a backslap and a dose of healthy holiday cheer the most. And Cindy says that the Grinch is the one in the most of that need. And the mayor says that the Grinch won't come down to accept this award. And so Cindy Lou's like, well, you know, fuck you. Yes, he will. I'm going to go up there and tell him personally, which is what she does. So she heads up to the top of Mount Crumpet on Christmas Eve. Yes. We're back in the Grinch's lair and he's making all manner of noise to drown out the Who celebration in town. And then Cindy Lou arrives and she knocks on the door, but she's not greeted with that giant Grinch head that her brother saw. Why not? Who cares? That was a one and done. Um, <laughs> Cindy Lou enters the lair through the dog door and inside the Grinch is being smashed on the head by symbols from an oversized screeching monkey doll. Cindy Lou just strolls over to the Grinch and he's standing there naked, getting beat about the head by this giant monkey robot in this film the grinch's dick and balls are hidden by his oversized tummy the way peter griffin's dick and balls are constantly hidden when he's naked um the grinch tries to scare off cindy lou in this scene but because she has no sense of reality she's not frightened by him at all and then we get to see jim carrey for about two minutes doing shtick being silly as he tries to frighten cindy lou and she gives it this uh, you're silly and then we get an end to the scene where jim carrey as the grinch looks at the camera and he's like kids these days they don't scare at all it's the media or something it's just do, do you think that ron howard's direction for this scene was just a t-shirt that said bigger i would call this scene embarrassing for jim carrey it's it is entirely unfunny and it's somebody laying themselves bare for you <laughs> as a performer and just failing it i feel so bad watching this scene i think that ron howard's direction was what clint can you answer the question that mr carrey has please <laughs> yes sir yes sir mr 
Mr. Ron Howard. That's right. You call me Mr. Howard, you coattail riding motherfucker. I saw the ice cream man. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you don't want to be an ice cream man, too, you treat me with a little goddamn respect, Clint. I'll smack you in the face um, right here in front of Mr. Carey. How would you like that? Not much, I bet. Cindy Lou tells the Grinch that he's won an award. And the Grinch agrees to go because there will be a bunch of losers. Oh, That's how he says it. Oh, I mean, so Ace bad. Ventura just shows up in the middle of this thing yeah. for some reason. Oh, it's so bad. But she brings him an invitation. He's like, I'm not going. Get out of here, little girl, before I, I don't know, try to scare you again. But like, to her credit, Cindy Lou is like, you're not, you're not fooling me. I can see right through the shtick. And then the only way to get rid of her is to lead her to a home alone shoot in the floor where he just cranks a lever and down she goes into the garbage chute. But, and, and doing the thing like the wee all the way, like, again, like the Goonies. Except she is getting stuck with, you know, who aids needles and cabbage. Who condoms. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh, that's horrifying. They're, they have key parties. You know that they're just chunking their old used rubbers. and Yeah, and all the babies are coming from umbrella ba- bassinets. So the ladies are keeping tight and right no matter how many kids they have, right? No wonder these who's are all so horny one thing leads to another and then the grinch has his invitation uh to go down and accept this award as the cheermeister and then i've sighed more in this review than anyone we've done to date the grinch decides that he's going to go to the party but he doesn't have anything to wear until he sees this random who wearing lederhosen and playing an alpenhorn and so the grinch snatches him off the side of the mountain with one of those night at the apollo stage hooks uh, that the Sandman would use. <laughs> I wish there had been the the guy coming along sweeping behind. <laughs> I'm going to presume that the Grinch grabbed this who off the mountain and then proceeded to murder him <laughs> right. and steal his clothes because he grabs him and he's gone. And the next thing we see is the Grinch is wearing these lederhosen and that who is never seen again. Yeah, I thought he would show up at the end like wearing a barrel or something with a set of suspenders. Just any old thing. But no, he just got murdered and thrown down the trash chute. Back at the Hubilation, the mayor is calling for the Grinch to arrive and accept his award. But back up at the Grinch lair, Max the dog pushes the Grinch into the garbage chute, forcing him to attend this party. When the Grinch pops out of this, you know, trash chute, abortion tube or whatever it is, he pops out in the middle of the celebration and he flies through the air and then he bounces off of a hung banner and then rebounds back across the stage where the mayor is standing right beside Martha May and the Grinch lands on top of Martha May, knocking her to the ground with his face buried in her huge exposed breast. Hey kids, that's funny, right? Right. Yeah, if you didn't think that boss joke was going to tide you over for the movie. Here's a good face in the tits joke, too. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Martha May isn't put off by it. She's all hot and bothered by the presence of the adult Grinch, who she has not seen for, what, 30 years? 25? What's the math on this? Yeah, I mean, it's decades. It doesn't matter (laughs) specifically. It's long enough that she should be like, oh, right, I went to school with this creature. 
Over the years, I learned to resent him for his color. The mayor decides to have an impromptu family reunion and invites the two old ladies who raised the Grinch for, I don't know, like the first six, seven years of his life up to see him. And he's like, there you, go. you two are still alive. And then they put him in an ugly Christmas sweater. And while they're dressing them, the Grinch says, don't touch me there. Which he's referring to what? His dick? His asshole? Is that? I presume the latter. <laughs> I was thinking it was both. There's two of them. One on the front and one on the back. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. They had key parties, Bo. This is not their biological child. He fell from the sky. <laughs> and he's green. <laughs> I'm just thinking, if you're going up the pooper and you're the Grinch, he's got those long, hairy fingers. And <laughs> and I think it's kind of like a big dog that's just real fluffy that if you shave that hand down... It's mostly a normal human-sized hand, you know, mm-hmm. proportionally speaking. And that if you're going in, in the rectum, you want a shaved Grinch hand, not the full-on hairy one. Or just put mm-hmm. a glove over it, maybe. I don't know. I thought about it a lot because <laughs> I couldn't pay attention to what the movie was telling me. The Who's put the Grinch in this chair of cheer, and they carry him around uh, in celebration. And then they start plying him with food where he's the judge of a pudding eating contest and then a, like a pie eating contest. And then over time, as this is edited, the Grinch gets into the spirit of things. He starts leading a conga line, and then he's having such a good time, right? No, because now they start cramming more food in his mouth, including fudge. But then he starts having fun and he starts egging him on to give him more food. Then we see the Grinch win a sack race against other children. And Jesus Christ, they're playing the music from Chariots of Fire during this race scene. And the Grinch is cheering that he's number one and he is having a good time at this event, right? Yeah, I mean, this is honestly the way to turn me around on the idea of Christmas is to feed me pudding and fudge and give me intermittent conga lines. Let you stick your face in a couple of big tits and have somebody stick their finger up your ass and you're good to go. Merry Christmas, Bo. Yeah. You know, put the the nog in your egg. Uh, Everything's going great. Then the mayor's like, hey, it's time to give you a gift. And so he gives the Grinch a box and he opens it and inside is the electric razor that he had used as a child to shave off his non-beard which doesn't make it that's a serial killer level of detail of this mayor being like i'm gonna hang on to this in a few decades this may let let me humiliate him some more because <laughs> there's no other reason to hang on to this specific razor and the mayor had it he is a monster <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor is a good bad guy. He's always kind of played that smarmy asshole. It was only until later in his career that I saw him in roles, whether it was through Arrested Development or the Larry Sanders show, where he became more of a lovable buffoon. Yeah. Um, Everything else that I'd ever seen him in, he always played just a prick. There is a, a manner in which he says the word girl when he is blaming Cindy Lou Who for the mess that's about mm-hmm. to happen. Where you're like, I, that feels uncomfortably real. Let's step on the gas and get to that scene. I got thoughts on that one as well. So after he gives the Grinch this electric razor, he then proceeds to whip out a ring and propose to Martha May on stage in front of the crowd, including the Grinch. And giving an engagement ring as a Christmas present seems like a good idea because you're kind of getting the two for one. 
but I think it makes you look cheap if you're a guy. Yeah, and also if you don't know the answer to that question when you buy the the, the ring, you are really a bust a couple of ways. A, you got a shitty present for your would-be girlfriend who has just humiliated you in front of all your friends and family. Like I'm a big believer in the private proposal s- scenario that if you if you ain't sure that there is a period at the end of the answer, then you are certainly not going to do it in public. No, you should know the answer to that question before you ask it. It's like being in court. <laughs> yeah, asking someone to marry you is a lot like cross-examining a witness in a in a high-profile <laughs> murder trial. You want to know the answers to the question before you ask them. Your Honor, having seen and lived with this man for up to a year and a half. Not only does he offer her a ring to get married, he offers her a car. And he says, you have 20 seconds to decide. So they start playing this TikTok music. And then the Grinch goes full on Quint and just scratches his fingers across the car with this scream. <laughs> Y'all know me. And gets the whole town's attention. You know what I hate for a living. I'll go out there and I'll catch. Wait, who am I catching? What? I'll steal your Christmas. Um, I ain't going to do it for $10,000. Sorry. <laughs> I'll find your Christmas. I'll catch it for 10, but I'll steal it. I'll steal the trees, the ornaments. The whole damn thing. The Grinch then proceeds to go on to berate the town because, as he puts it, this is what it's all about. Gifts. He goes on to say that all their gifts end up at the dump with him. And he actually says that he could hang himself with all of the Christmas neckties that he's found at the dump. Which, hey Grinch, ixnay on the anging hay in front of the oohays <laughs> because you are... Gay. Yeah, they're like after uh he goes on his rant and people are like, hey, this get this jerk out of our town. He tries to catch a taxi and to drive the racism home. The taxi won't stop and he comments on it. He says, Oh, you won't stop for me because I'm green. Uh-huh. It's movie and fucking around. I expected him to, to peek out around the corner and be like, Hey, where are the who women at? <laughs> I know that we are often accused, and by often I mean I think once, of reading a little too much political correctness into these films and, and viewing them through a modern eye instead of the eye uh, uh, that, that viewed them at the time of, of the film's release. Uh, you know, something like you're smoking the bandits and nice asses and whatnots. But this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, your honor... I give to you exhibit a racism joke with the taxi where he's talking about his skin being green and all through this movie, this is happening. And I don't know that it was intentional. I think it's just a happy racist accident. During this scene, when he's yelling at the town, he grabs a mistletoe, which is precariously placed between the giant breast of Martha May. He snatches it off and puts it over his asshole and tells the whole town to pucker up, which is funnier when I say it than when he did it. And then he takes a, the electric razor and shaves off part of the mayor's hair. And then he gives any, and then it's exclamated with somebody's fabulous, which, all right, just please stop it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, all through the movie, that's, that was running through my head of just please stop, please, please stop. 
he goes over and steals this old man's bottle of hooch, which how do I know there's booze inside of it? Well, it's a tiny little jug with three X's on it. And this alcoholic who complains, hey, that's my good stuff. So the Grinch fills his mouth with booze and then grabs some source of fire and spits out the alcohol in the direction of this 50 foot tall Christmas tree in the town square and literally burns this motherfucker to the ground in a spectacular spectacular show of fuckallery this is one of the few moments in the movie where it was really behind the grinch because before it had been a lot of prank phone calls and your water heaters running that kind of shit but burning down the christmas tree in the center of town that is some straight up detroit shit and i respect it Dude, it's Christmas Eve. This town is in total chaos. He has ruined their holiday. And better yet, at this point in the movie, you are an hour and change into the film, and we haven't even started page one of the book. Don't worry, Chad, because we're going to do all of it, and it's going to take for fucking ever. Just you wait. <laughs> because a after uh, he gets out of town, he goes back to his mountain, and it's and it is... How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It immediately turns into, like, he had an awful Grinchity idea. The Grinch steals uh, a tiny car from some of the tiny Who's, and he rides it through the town, um, and he's great big, and the car's real tiny, and he's flying through the air, and it's one of those things that, oh, kids are going to love this, but it's Grand Theft, so we've got manslaughter charge, murder charge, vandalism, Grand Theft, destruction of public property, vandalism, I don't know if I mentioned assault or not, this is just the list of charges that he could be brought up on. If you're claiming manslaughter for the guy up on the mountain, the Grinch had to go well, out- That was murder. Yeah, yeah, that's murder one, brother. That He had to go out of his way to get a giant hook for the guy. I, I was thinking of thinking more like attempted manslaughter when Cindy Lou, who fell into the gift sorting box. Oh, sure. The Grinch crashes this tiny car and it catches fire. And then the Grinch runs away in this Hollywood action hero slow-mo style as the car explodes. Then we get this wide shot of Whoville, and there is a mushroom cloud explosion in the town. It is massive, considering the size of the actual city. The town is in ruins, and it is the fault of one person, and that person is not the Grinch, because I blame Cindy Lou Who, as does the mayor. And the mayor wants Christmas the way it used to be, you know, all who colored without any green folk around and because the mayor's racist. And then he calls out Cindy Lou who and her family for being the ones that caused all of these problems because arguably they did. Right. And in this scene, Cindy Lou tells her dad, I just wanted everybody to be together for Christmas, which what are you talking about? She had never seen the Grinch 48 hours ago. Yeah. He was just a, a, a mythical creature that maybe lived on a mountain. Yeah, Cindy's a little busybody who needs to keep her nose out of other people's affairs, quite frankly. For some reason, the Who's have a backup, pre-decorated, pre-lit, 50-foot-tall tree that they're like, hey, I'm so glad we had another one. And so they just pop it up in the middle of town to get Christmas back to normal. I What? Why are we resetting the table? Why does nothing matter in this movie? Like, he burns down the tree, that ought to matter. And it doesn't at all the grinch heads home and this is where we start at the part of the story that everybody knows uh it's here that the grinch comes up with his plan to steal everyone's christmas gifts and decorations but one important thing to note here is his motivation in this film as i noted earlier in the original book and television uh, adaptation he does this 
because he doesn't like the Who's and their celebration of Christmas. If I take away all these trappings, Christmas will not happen. In this movie, he's stealing their stuff because Whoville is filled with racist assholes <laughs> that don't like him and who he hates. It's personal. It has nothing to do with learning about the true meaning of Christmas. It's basically, fuck me, fuck you. Yeah, he says it's revenge. It, it, it Like, this <laughs> is a grinchity, grinchy death wish movie. Instead of killing his, his wife, they just steal his wife and kick him out of town for the color of his skin. And the Grinch decides to stroll back into Whoville and take no prisoners. Let's not forget, this all takes forever. Because whereas in the cartoon and in the, the book, it's all this, you know, rhyming prose of the Grinch's heart was too small. You know, that kind of shit. And... How many lines were in the book? Like 78, something like that? Not a bunch. And this all takes forever because we've got to see Jim Carrey ham around at every step of the plan. When we're doing the rocket sled tests and shit like that, we also get this version of the, you know, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch song as sung by Jim Carrey in every voice he has in his quiver. And it just goes on forever, like everything does in this movie. Like, we take a break so long in the middle of this song, I forgot they were singing. And then, all of a sudden, <laughs> after the rocket sled, it's like, you're a foul one, Mr. Grinch. And I'm like, what? We're still doing a musical number in this fucking thing? <laughs> At one point, the Grinch acknowledges that he's speaking in rhyme along with Anthony Hopkins' narration. The rhyme and meter of Dr. Seuss is much of the charm of the TV adaptation. And in this moment, the movie really exhibits how it is incapable of understanding that it's essentially rejecting everything that's good about the source material and just strip mining all these other elements to tell a story void of any sense of kindness or moral fortitude. It it doesn't just miss the point. It tries to it tries to be moralistic in its own way with all the commercialism stuff, which was so much more subtly done in the book, which is strange to say. A kid's book was way more subtle than this big budget movie. So it it doesn't get the subtlety of that stuff. And then it makes the character, not just of the Grinch, but all the characters, just so reprehensible. Like, nobody is a good person in this entire movie other than Cindy Lou Who. And again, it's just not enough to hang your hat on for an hour and 45 minutes or whatever this is. I mean, in fairness, because I was looking a lot at my watch, seven minutes is all credit. So you got that going for you. When you look at the runtime <laughs> on this thing, just mentally shave seven minutes off of that because... It's uh, it's all credits. Your point earlier is that one big change that they made, one of, one of many big changes that they make in this, is that he builds this flying hovercraft of a sleigh that earlier in the movie, we hear that it's four hours before Christmas arrives. And so he runs back to his lair and builds this sleigh and creates his Santa suit and everything else in just like a matter of minutes, which... No, he didn't. After he gets everything he needs to go steal Christmas, we see the Grinch looking down at Whoville and we see Santa Claus visiting the Who's and then uh, flying away with his reindeer. So I don't even understand how worlds collide 
in this scenario. It makes no sense whatsoever. I would have been less surprised if Shaquille O'Neal and the Energizer Bunny had been there. It doesn't make any sense at all. Because you only see him distantly. I assume that this was the mousy Santa Claus from the Twas the Night Before Christmas cartoon. Ooh. Which... I like that. Which is also way better and more entertaining than this. (laughs) In the movie... Uh, the Grinch realizes he doesn't have a reindeer. And so just like in the adaptation for television, he fashions uh, Max the dog into a reindeer, which is unnecessary because he is flying a hovercraft sleigh. The Grinch gets in his sleigh and uh, flies off. And there's this hilarious action packed sequence when they zoom through the air. It's not funny. I will have to admit, maybe the one genuine laugh I got out of this movie, and maybe it's just because I was so beaten down by life, much like uh, Kevin Costner's dad from Field of Dreams, that when he recovers the sleigh, and there's, like, the screaming that he engages in, the mortal terror of those sounds... And then when it cuts back to him and he's just kind of slowly like, you know, kind of coming back to himself and says, oh, I almost uh, let my emotions get away from me there. I think that's actually a funny bit. It doesn't belong in this movie, but it worked for me as a joke. His first stop is at Cindy Lou Who's house. Um, And you know how this story goes. He gets inside. He steals all their Christmas stuff. Uh, Cindy Lou Who shows up looking for a glass of water. But unlike the television adaptation that's actually good. Cindy Lou Who, in this version, knows who the Grinch is and what he looks like and what he sounds like. Hell, she's been to his house and she's seen him naked. So not a whole lot of Getting clapped in the head by a giant monkey, which is a thing that will haunt her for the rest of her days. (laughs) So when she shows up for a drink of water, he hides behind a Christmas tree, which I'll admit was kind of a, a clever dodge. But then during his conversation with Cindy Lou Who, she asks him, or she asks, Asks who she thinks is Santa Claus. What is Christmas all about? And the Grinch bursts his big green head through the tree to where she can see his face. And he yells out, Vengeance! At Cindy Lou, who would immediately recognize that this is the Grinch. How she does not... His face is in plain sight. She's inches... He's inches from her nose. It's clearly the Grinch. These Whos are simple animals, Chad. They give you the illusion of being smarter because of all the tools and stuff. But they're simple, simple beasts. Maybe she's just face blind. She's just like, you know what? I just... I cannot remember a face. And you are... And we met. Maybe she's totally blind and they, they just left out the scene where she does a book of Eli at the end of this. It's like, oh. That would have made a hell of a lot more sense. She was blind the whole time. Cindy Lou goes to bed and tells, quote, Santa not to forget the Grinch and that she thinks that he's kind of sweet. But based on what? I don't know why she would say this. It makes no sense. Because he saved her life? I mean, look, man, he burned down the Christmas tree in town with flames from his mouth. That was not an accident. She's got Grinchy fever. The Grinch ends this scene by admitting that even Cindy Lou, who is a bad judge of character. Uh, Another problem with this scene is after bursting out and doing the, you know, vengeance a bit, she's like, well, what? it's not revenge. What's the true meaning of of Christmas? Is it? you know, presents? Is it something else? And then he says, presents, I suppose. And then off he fucks into the night. But it's another moment where the movie is like, remember, commercialism is bad, guys. And then, you know, we'll forget about this for another 10, 15 minutes, and then somebody will say something else about it. 
there's a bunch more scenes where we rip off the TV special a whole lot, which I think probably that's what people came here to see. Like, just show me that in a different fashion. And that's what they do here. <laughs> I'll tell you what I don't remember from the cartoon, Chad, is the point where the Grinch makes the mayor kiss his dog's asshole. <laughs> now, that may be my own memory, but it's all right here in a, a book we've mentioned on this show before. All dogs go to the movies. Chapter 9, Pucker Up and Lick. A list of movies <laughs> in which a dog's asshole is rubbed in a character's face. Top of that list, Chad. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Well, the, the scene right after he kisses the dog's asshole in his slumber, we see Max the dog raking his anus across the floor like he's got a rousing case of inflamed butthole sack. It's just, or he's got like worms that are making their way out like a, a fresh order of lo mein straight from his stink star. <laughs> Yeah, real Lost Boys blend of mealworms. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's like, hey, if, if you're the creep in the audience that was pining for the days of the Grinch falling face first into some tits, here's a, 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 a dessert of dog anus for you. Speaking of Martha May's tits, he goes to her house and steals her engagement ring while and watches her while she sleeps. And he makes faces at her, which I'm like, I thought you liked this woman. Maybe not. And Martha May is looks like a million bucks. She looks like she's on her way to like a Jessica Rabbit convention. Her hair's all done up. She's got bright red lipstick. Her boobs are hanging out. So I don't know which end is up uh, in this movie. This movie is poorly shot and edited. And, uh, <laughs> and it looks bad and, and it's... It's not funny. It's just a bummer to experience. <laughs> There's a scene where we see the Grinch take a hook and then he puts it on something and you don't even know what it is. You're just like, well, something happened there. And we find out later what it I is. I didn't realize a there was a separate cop character from Lou Who until the end of this movie where I was like, oh, that guy? Well, they were wearing almost the same uniform and they look almost the same because they both look like well, yeah. rat people. Luhu is the postman. Right. There's a different guy who's the cop. Right, but I, you could have fooled me until the last 20 minutes of this movie. <laughs> All I know is that there's a mutant thing running around in a uniform. I can't look past that. I'm not differentiating between the monstrosities. We then get more reimagining of the TV special in live action form. And there really, at this point, should be less of this. And by less of this, I mean this movie should never have been made. Um <laughs> Finally, the Grinch is done with stealing everybody's stuff, and he fires up his hover sleigh, and it has run out of gas. So Max the dog is hitched up to pull this thing to the top of Mount Crumpet, which is literally impossible for this tiny dog to do. Uh, well, again, there are no rules in this universe. Like, a rocket sled into a wall, Chad. If that, if that ain't doing our, our hero in, nothing will. We get to the top of the mountain uh, eventually, uh, thanks to Max's hard work, and the Grinch is there, and he's going to listen for all the Who's down in Whoville all cry, boo-hoo-hoo, which all of the Who's come out, and they are all kind of sad, and they're all stunned to find that everything is gone. The police chief runs out and gets in his car, and he drives off, and it's here that we find out that his car is attached to a cable that is attached to a hook. That was the thing that we saw the Grinch attached to the mayor's bed. And as the police chief or whatever drives through town, he's dragging the mayor. I don't what know. are we even doing in this movie? 
it doesn't make any sense. So then the mayor in his bed gets out and he then proceeds to berate the entire town for inviting the Grinch uh, to be there for Christmas because he's ruined everything. And then on top of that, he goes off and he points at Cindy Lou Who and says, it's the town's fault for listening to, quote, a little not to be taken seriously girl. And to your point earlier, earlier, I, in my head, sort of anticipating line that he was going to say a not to be taken seriously little child, but instead he, he says not to be taken seriously little girl. And it's just like, what the hell is going on here, man? Yeah, it's disconcerting. It, it's delivered in much the same way that Angus Scrim says the word boy in Phantasm. You know, it is just this prolonged ac- accusatory rage. If he had just hauled off and punched her in the face, in her little who-child face, I would not have been surprised. The mayor, or he tells Cindy Lou that he's hope that she's proud of what she's done. And then Lou who the dad steps in and says, well, if she isn't, I am. Yeah, we should, we should probably get to a point in this movie. Huh? Are you with me? I, I don't know, what, are, what are you talking about? You're proud of her for what? <laughs> Bringing the Grinch and having him destroy everything. Look, Hey everybody, we're not getting out of this movie without somebody giving a rousing speech. How about I give it? Who's with me? The who's in this movie are messed up in the head about Christmas. And theoretically, it is Cindy Lou that reverses all of Whoville's perspective on the holiday. Everyone in this town is 100% team, give me a present. Getting all their shit stolen on Christmas Eve would not purge a core belief of where's mine's at. If you got all your shit stolen and that's where your head's been at forever, your shit is stolen and you are basically climbing to the top of Mount Crumpet and you are going to murder this green thief. (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised that he hasn't been framed before for something. But now that they've got him dead to nuts, that he 100% broke into their homes and stole stuff, he's dead. He's dead before he ever goes to trial. I'm surprised they didn't fashion one of those Christmas tie hanging nooses that the Grinch mentioned earlier. You know, march straight up to his lair and then just toss the Grinch off a tree branch and just let him hang in the wind. You give a line of these who's one of them Christmas-like Gatling guns and you just aim it at the Grinch and you let it fly. No one's going to survive it. I like the idea of him with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, though, like blindfold on. The town of Whoville is preparing to do the Grinch in, finally. Cindy Lou is happy because her dad is happy because they have nothing. I don't. Cindy Lou goes over to the garbage chute and then she zips up to Mount Crumpet on her own because this movie isn't following the moral narrative of its source material. And it's here that the Grinch is uh, getting ready to throw all their Christmas goods into the dump because he's a jerk and everyone town is a jerk. The Grinch then hears the town singing their signature song and the Grinch gets all pissed off and Max the dog cowers in fear, which this dog cowers in fear a lot in this movie. <laughs> sure. Um, it's at this point the Grinch discovers the true meaning of Christmas by as what I saw it was him having a stroke or maybe a heart attack. Because Jim Carrey's performance at this point in the movie made me think that the Grinch was going to die as he just flails around, grabbing his chest and just seizing up. It's a real grand mal seizure kind of scenario. It's at this point that the Grinch's heart 
grows three sizes that day. And the Grinch just sits and just starts weeping openly. And it's supposed to be funny, touching, poignant. I don't know. There's a cut over to Max the dog, and even the dog looks embarrassed for Jim Carrey's performance. <laughs> the sun comes up and shines on the Grinch, and then he says, I'm all toasty inside. Which, that mention of toast made me decide that it was definitely a stroke and not a heart attack. <laughs> um, right, he smells toast and immediately starts slurring. That's why his jaw's all dripping to one side throughout the whole movie. He's like talking out of one side of his mouth the whole time. Max! Get over here, Max! The Who doctor looking over his corpse and saying, well, it looks like he had a series of minor TI incidents <laughs> leading up to the final stroke. Did him in. Has his skin always been this color? Yeah, did no one um, take him to a doctor before it? Because this green skin is what happens to Who's who are about to have a severe stroke. Jesus Christ, there is a fork inside his body cavity. Who? How has this man lived as long as he has? Well, doctor, when I came to town with some heart trouble, no decent doctor would see me. I had to get a back alley heart, heart surgery. You're saying that you heard singing and your heart engorged triple its original size? I, I'd had a, a sloppy Joe earlier, too. I don't know if that could have done it. There's nothing I can do to help you, sir. You know what? Do me a favor. Go over and pick out a few of those Christmas neckties and uh, a branch off of the side of Mount Crumpet. Nah. That's my. <laughs> yeah, but this is also the point in the movie where I, I my note is, how are there 15 minutes left in this movie? Which, <laughs> hey, but here's the good news. There's only eight. I, I also asked, what have I done to anger God immediately after... <laughs> My 15 minutes left note. The sleigh starts to slip off Mount Crumpet. The Grinch grabs it, but he's too weak to pull it back. So maybe Max should come over and give it a tug because he dragged that fucking thing up to the top of the mountain in the first place. Yeah. The The Grinch is saving these presents because he is now a changed man. But as it slips, he says, well... It's just toys, because, you know, who gives a shit, right? Right. Why would anything matter in the last two minutes of this movie? The Grinch, at this point, is just going to let it fall to the ground. I mean, he heard the singing, his heart grew three sizes, but at this point, he's like, you know what? Fuck all. I don't care. What are they going to do? Lynch me? He's just going to let it fall to the ground. He doesn't give a shit. But then he looks up, and Cindy Lou Who peeks over the top of the sleigh, and she's like, hey, Grinch, what's up? And because... The child is in danger. The Grinch has to really up the ante and yank this sleigh back to keep her from falling to her perilous death, like the Lederhosen who that we saw earlier. Right. He's already got one murder on his conscience. He can't can't see another face staring at him in the darkness night after night. So he's going to save this who. He does. He, he just yetis out and picks up the sled and then... They sled down the mountain, which takes for goddamn ever. They don't just ride the sleigh down the mountain. Cindy Lou is driving the sleigh with Max the dog while the Grinch snow skis behind it. Yeah, because we can't just end this movie. We got to do another five minutes of Jim Carrey hamming it up and just all over the slopes. <laughs> I was so tired by this point, Chad. I was so... I just... I had given up. I had surrendered to the Grinch. I was just like, whatever you want to do, just make it fast. He says that the snow is bitchin'. 
And then at one point he throws out his legs and says, spread eagle. And those two old ladies down in Whoville were like, ooh. No, I saw a little Grinch dick. <laughs> Martha, did you see the little green dangle? Why are we doing sex jokes at all in this movie? Even even him saying bitching about the snow was the thing I was like, this doesn't feel right for this film. This is a kid's movie. Like, how many... Uh, fine. I guess you're assuming that the, the how the Grinch stole Chris, Christmas is taking the cynical approach that kids are already cursing and thinking about shoving their face <laughs> in tits. So let's just lean into the darker sides of childhood. We'll be will be the sinister Christmas film that the weirdo kids can enjoy. The town sees the out of control sleigh headed uh, down the mountain. So Martha May and her nemesis Betty, for some reason, team up to create some Christmas light stop sticks to slow this thing down because they're friends now. I don't know. Which doesn't matter. That line doesn't matter. The fact that they put Christmas lights in the way doesn't matter, except that it drags they're dragged behind the sled. I, I mean, I feel like Bill Murray in Meatballs pounding a log on the hearth. <laughs> just It just doesn't matter. Even if Ron Howard stopped drinking coffee long enough to give direction to Clint Howard to give direction to Jim Carrey, still wouldn't matter. The sleigh comes to a stop with little to no help from Lou Who, who kind of puts his hand out and it doesn't matter. The sleigh stops and, and there's nothing perilous or no one is hurt when the sleigh comes to its final resting point and then the grinch gets out of the sleigh and the police officer is there and the grinch immediately puts his hands out and says arrest me put me in a chokehold blind me with pepper spray because you know what that's how they treat people with green skin in whoville he knows what to expect uh, apparently they let the irish in though because the who cop is named like oh hooligan or whatever <laughs> oh faith and begora grinch let's get you into these shackles Martha May gives back the engagement ring to the mayor, and she says she's in love with the Grinch. Why? Who cares? The Grinch is a jerk, and he gloats in front of the mayor because he's got Martha May and the mayor doesn't. Everyone gets their present back, so they don't learn anything at the end. Cindy Lou kisses the Grinch and says, your cheeks are so warm. Which, in most cases, when you kiss somebody and they feel warm, that means they're sick, but... Well, because it, it, he gives her the multiple choice of hairy, clammy, stinky, and she's like, no, warm. And it's like, oh, that's that would be heartwarming if I cared about any of these characters or any of the events of this film. The whole town starts singing their signature song around the tree, that Yahoo, Bore, whatever... And then they go like person to person. And then we get to the Grinch. He's singing along, but he doesn't really know the right words. And then for some damn reason, they move the whole celebration to the top of Mount Crumpet and have their final meal inside the Grinch's lair. Why would they do this? It is a long ass haul from Whoville to Mount Crumpet to take all of their food, all of their just people like you wouldn't relocate. You would have the celebration in Whoville. You wouldn't go back to the top of the mountain. Unless it was suggested by Max, because he is the only dog allowed at this dinner table. Which begs the question, where are the other dogs in Whoville? Are there other dogs? Is Max, like, some kind of sentient being as far as these little monsters are concerned? It's the only thing I can I can uh, think of. Maybe he's God. <laughs> he is their deity. Like, in the book <laughs> of Who, it's just, at the end of it, it's just a picture of Max. Like, with the radiant halo around his head. I like that the Grinch carves the roast beast with a switchblade because, you know, that's normal. <laughs> right. The knife he had on him. And for a second, everyone's like, oh, shit, is he about to cut a bitch? 
Like everyone takes a breath and backs up a little bit, and then he's like, no, it's for the beast. And then the Grinch, the last lines of the movie, the Grinch asks, who wants the gizzard? Because gizzard's a funny word. And then you hear someone say, I do. And the Grinch says, too late, it's mine. Because the Grinch is a selfish asshole who's learned nothing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then Merry Christmas, everybody. The end. Yeah. Yeah, we exit the snowflake and the long national nightmare is over. This is, front to back, top to bottom, a complete turd of a movie. It is filled with terrible performances and awful dialogue. Nothing makes sense. Everything looks cheap and crappy. The makeup is probably the best thing about it, but that's because it's horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) There's no message. There's no moral. There's no heart. There's no real Christmas spirit. One of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life, which I I still watch every Christmas, believe it or not. It is my Christmas movie because it is the one that contains the most suicide attempts uh, that I'm aware of. (laughs) But, but, But I love that movie because by the end of it, you know, when he when George Bailey bursts through the door after his uh, encounter with the angel and seeing what life would be like without him. And he runs up the stairs and he grabs uh, the knob uh, on the on the ra- the stair railing off the, that he had been so furious about because it comes off every time you touch it. It comes off in his hand and he just starts peppering it with kisses because he is so happy that even this little thing that annoyed him so much that it's part of his life. That he values his life so much even the thing that pissed him off is a thing of great joy and beauty in that moment. There is nothing in how the Grinch stole Christmas that even approaches a moment of genuine emotion. Uh, as you put it, Christmas spirit of just empathy for one's fellow man, you know, just something that was remotely Christmas like, and I'm willing to be swayed. Like I want a good Christmas movie. Uh, there aren't a ton of them, but when I, when I see one, it makes me happy because I'm a sucker for a sappy movie at the right time. And this movie didn't even, it couldn't even tug these uh, easy heartstrings. No, it is not a good movie. It's just, it's not. And, you know, at the time of this recording, there is a new Illumination animated feature called The Grinch with Benedict Cumberbatch. No, Benedict Cumberbatch doing Dimble the voice bum, of The Grinch. Voice of the Grinch. And when I first saw that, I was just like, what is this? But, you know, it's show business. They're trying to make a buck or two. Do what you want to do. In my opinion, the original book is a fine, fine piece of children's literature. The original television adaptation, the work that Chuck Jones did on that, you can see his fingerprints on it almost as much as you can see Dr. Seuss's own. That's as good as it's going to get, and it's not going to get any better. You're not going to be able to to surpass that because that TV adaptation arguably took something that you would probably animate into maybe a 10 or 12 minute feature. They padded it out with songs and repetitive animation sequences to create, as I noted earlier, a true holiday classic. This thing is just a wreck. It's a money grab. And quite honestly, I think that if uh, Ted Geisel were alive and had seen this, he would just be filled with fucking rage. <laughs> right. That Dr. Seuss friendly old anti-Japanese Dr. Seuss would be, would be like, 
who the fuck is playing the Grinch? How about you, how about you get him right the fuck out of that movie? There's a key party in the middle of the movie, a party where people indiscriminately have sex with strangers or casual acquaintances. How about you not have somebody rub a dog's butthole in somebody's face in my movie? How about that? How about you don't have somebody whip out a switchblade at a holiday meal? <laughs> in the Like at the happy resolution of the film, no less. Yeah, it's just garbage. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the first one across the bow is one of the worst movies we've ever done on this show. So, Bo, what do we have coming up on episode two of this season? Oh, uh, here's a, a really sharpening the knives for your sacred cows, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I know a lot of people out there uh, love this movie, and we're going to explain to you why you're wrong. Uh, that is, of course, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Um, it is not very good. No, it is not. <laughs> so go ahead, get the emails ready. The subject line is shitters full. <laughs> and you can put your the, the top five things that make you laugh about uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And uh, we will we will dispel them. <laughs> so come back, see us again next week. We will continue with another helping of holiday cheer, insights, hilarity, witty banter between the two of us, and um, hopefully less and less Jim Carrey. I guess I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh.